It feels like every day there are new dire predictions of the state of the UK economy and jobs. The UK is unquestionably facing an unemployment crisis. And I fear that there'll be many more thousands of job losses announced in the next few weeks. Maybe up to four million people unemployed. We haven't seen anything like that since all the way back in the 1980s. Last week, we discovered that the number of paid employees in Britain has plunged by 650,000 since the start of the pandemic. As the furlough scheme winds down, the Office for Budget Responsibility says 1.4 million furloughed people are at risk of unemployment. And almost a third of companies plan to cut jobs in the next three months. The jobs just aren't there at the moment. That's the crux of it at the moment. The jobs just aren't there. I just never thought I'd be in a position where I'd be out of work and unemployed. It's the first time I've been unemployed to this extent in my entire life. So, did the job retention scheme save jobs or just delay the inevitable? How are unions supporting workers during this time? And what can we do to avoid a tsunami of job losses? We can't just turn off the tap on furlough in October and tell people you're on your own. Let's create a zero carbon army of people working on these green jobs. There's still time to avoid additional floods of redundancy notices. In this episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're delving into the state of employment after the pandemic. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, we're joined down the line by the wonderful Alfie Sterling, returning friend of the pod, head of economics at the New Economics Foundation. Welcome back, Alfie. Hi there. Thanks for joining us. And we're also joined by Nikki Pound, policy and campaign support officer at the TUC. Hi, Nikki. Hi, thanks for having me. No worries. So we're going to dive in, uh, starting off with the big predictions that we've heard about over the past few weeks. So as I mentioned, the Office for Budget Responsibility has said that unemployment in the UK could rise to levels last seen in the 1980s. So Alfie, could you start off with a quick explainer for us on why this is happening? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's really important to stress that whenever you see big numbers thrown about at the moment, nobody really knows exactly what is really going on. There are two problems. One is Nobody knows the future. And so we're really in a world of forecasts at the moment because the recent past is not a good prediction for the next 6, 12 or 18 months. So it's a lot of uncertainty on forecasts. The second problem is we don't fully understand what's even going on in the present or in the last few weeks and months either. So there are a number of odd things that are going on at the moment. So one is that, you know, normally during a recession, we would rely on the data for employment or unemployment to tell you how things are going. But at the moment, both of these kind of statistics are quite stable. And that's because of the job retention scheme, uh, which you mentioned in your intro, this kind of scheme that allows people to stay in work while the government takes on the cost of employment. So these really important indicators aren't moving much. But we do know that there are some other really bad signs for what's going on beneath that. So we know that you mentioned about 600,000 people have come off PAYE altogether. That's employees being paid from work. We also know that the average number of hours that people are working has fallen from close to 40 hours, if you're on full-time work, to about 30 hours. It's a big, big chunk of hours coming out of the labour market. We also know that the number of people claiming unemployment-related benefits has spiked massively. That's gone up to 2.8 million. But again, you need some caution around these numbers. Because of universal credit, the way that the unemployment-related benefit count works is now different to how it used to in the past because you can receive universal credit whilst you're in work. 
So it's important saying it looks really bad what's happening in the last few months. There's a lot of uncertainty, but all the forecasts, you mentioned the OPR, but there's also about 30 different macroeconomic forecasts for the UK. And they're all looking at expectations for unemployment to go well above 2 million, possibly above 3 million by Christmas. Now that's you know up to 2 million above what the unemployment was last year. So this is big, big numbers. And as you said, we haven't seen unemployment at 3 million since the 1980s. Mm. So we're going to stay with the big numbers for a second. The OECD has predicted that 15% of the working population could be unemployed if there's a second wave. So Alfie, how would a second wave, if it was to come, affect the job losses that you just mentioned? So most of these predictions, they try and predict us a world in which there is no second wave. So if you like, it's best case scenario. But as you say, you know, a second wave would be you know, catastrophic. It'd be really bad, clearly, from a public health point of view, but also from the point of view of Unemployment. The only point I'd make on this is that it really also shows us that when people talk about a trade-off between the economy and public health, it's really hard to understand exactly what they mean. There, there is no true trade-off because fundamentally we will only get back to a healthy economy, people able to work, feeling confident to work, feeling confident to go to the pub, confident to go to the shops, if the pandemic is under control. So at the root of it, you can try and paper over cracks, but there's no trade-off. Ultimately, unless you fix the pandemic or we can get our public health in order, we can get a test track and trace in order, have a pharmaceutical intervention to treat people. Unless we can get those things, the economy won't become healthy again either. Mm, okay. Thanks for setting the scene, Alfie. We're going to go through it in a methodical way, as we like to do. So let's start with the government's response, how they've tried to avoid job losses through the job retention scheme. So over 9 million people have been furloughed, as we know, but the scheme is winding down from August and it will end in October. So Nikki, what's likely to happen in October? Um, I mean, I think just to echo Alfie's point, there is so much uncertainty around what happens going forward. I think from our perspective, it's hard to imagine the situation we'd be in if the government hadn't taken the lead and made the job retention scheme. And it really has had a huge impact on protecting people's incomes through this crisis. So in your opinion, it was the right thing to do then as a good policy? Yeah, I think so. And obviously, it's not perfect. We know the self-employment scheme that sits alongside it does have some problems. And there's a lot of self-employed people who currently are not getting any help and are still in a really uncertain situation and will be for some time. But I think ultimately, you know, it's something that we help negotiate and we do think it was the right thing to do to protect incomes now. I think what we need to see is the government continuing with that kind of action and actually being flexible and open to the idea of extending where needed. There's going to be people who need to continue to shield. There's going to be people with caring responsibilities that can't return to work in the way that they were working before this crisis started. There's also part of the uncertainty is the fact that it's going to affect different sectors differently and at different times. Some sectors are going to be able to start reopening up now. Some sectors have started that, but there's a risk that it's going to be a very protracted crisis in the sense of, yes, we will see some big job losses immediately, but you may also see those job losses continuing into next year. Retail is a good example where they've obviously had some online sales, they're starting to open their high street stores. But, you know, if retail companies have a bad Christmas because consumer behaviour has changed, people's incomes are impacted, that then could lead to more problems down the line there and more job losses. So I think what we would like to see is that the government looks to protect existing jobs and also looks to sort of take some bold action on creating new jobs as well. 
And I think one of the key things to that is that it's a sectoral approach and actually getting around the table with unions, with business leaders, with other think tanks, with local governments, and hammering out some policies and some actions that are relevant locally and that look at different industries and look at the makeup of those areas. It's been in the news about 8,000 job losses in one week in the West Midlands, really reliant on manufacturing, particularly the automotive industry. They've also been impacted by some of the retail job loss announcements. Like We need to make sure that the approach is flexible, I think. That is what we would like to see more of. Yeah. I mean, I definitely want to talk more about what needs to be done, but just to stick with the job retention scheme for a second, at the mini budget last week, the Chancellor Rishi Sunak announced that employers who don't make their furlough employees redundant after the scheme ends will get a bonus of £1,000 per employee. Nikki, do you think that will protect people's jobs? It's not enough, I don't think. The reality is people's operating costs will have increased and will continue to increase as they're sort of implementing measures to manage reopening and to manage doing their business in a socially distanced and safe way. And obviously health and safety is the absolute priority again to Alfie's point. There's no recovery without the health and safety and the protection of public health. So like a lot of businesses cash flow has obviously taken a massive hit because they've had no income for four months. You know, I think it was the Office of National Statistics in their faster indicators stuff that they've been doing. Over 40% of businesses have less than six months cash reserves. It's just the scale of what businesses and organisations are facing. I don't think it's enough. And I think to the point about the pay-ye numbers, that 650,000, that's not even covering the announcements that we've heard in the last few weeks. I think the day after the Chancellor's summer statement, there was 10,000 job loss announcements. Boots announced 4,000 job losses. John Lewis was about 1,300. I think Rolls-Royce announced, you know, 3,000 people looking into taking voluntary redundancy. So it's every day there's more announcements that haven't yet been captured. So I think businesses are facing a crisis now and they haven't got any sort of certainty that enables them to plan because some of the announcements are reliant on take-up, they're reliant on people feeling comfortable to go back into work, into the city, use public transport, use local businesses. We're getting reports already of employers looking to do like fire and rehire. There was a really big news story about British Airways as well so I think much more does need to be done. Yeah, I mean, sticking with that point then, Alfie, that Nikki mentioned earlier about we need new jobs, you know, it's not just enough to kind of be preserving them, we need creation of new jobs as well. Another part of the Chancellor's plan is this temporary job creation scheme for young people. Alfie, could you tell us a bit about what that is and whether you think that that's going to have a positive impact? Sure, yeah. I mean, I just wanted to say a couple of things on the job retention scheme. I completely agree with everything Nikki was saying. I mean, I think it's worth saying and emphasising which is not something we do very often on this podcast, to be honest, but just how good a piece of government policy this was way back in March and April. When we talk about the uncertainty going forward, the reason we're in a relatively good position, which we don't know quite how bad it's going to be, is because of how effective government policy has been protecting over 9 million jobs. Without that, we certainly would have unemployment well above 3 million right now. It'd be, you know, 5, 6 million probably at least. But I think there's a key thing, though, about good policy to date, The one gripe might be that there should have been a bit more flexibility allowing part-time furloughing, so allowing people to come back to work partially and still be furloughed, which was possible this month, but hadn't been possible in uh, April, May and June. But going forwards, the really big problem is this cliff edge. So they are just going to withdraw support for the scheme incredibly abruptly from October. 
So basically, in October, there'll be something pretty close to a full furlough. Employers will need to pay 20% of salary and the employment costs. But then November, absolutely nothing. And that's a really big problem because it means there's very little scope to plan to have that runway where you can land back to a safe recovery. And the job retention bonus does very, very little to address that at all. In effect, all it does is push that cliff edge just one month further on. And it's expected to have very little impact whatsoever. What is the thinking behind that? I mean, it seems pretty basic that if you cut it off quickly, you know, all at once rather than trail it out, it's going to have that impact. Have they said anything about why? They haven't publicly because actually part of it is about signaling to business and they don't want to be overt about that. But the Treasury tends to believe in, you know, shock policies for the labour market and they believe that ultimately you need to just incentivize businesses to get their ducks in order. And they may also believe that some jobs won't exist permanently and therefore if a job isn't going to be existing for the long term, there's no point subsidising it. I think that's a misjudgment. I think it will cause a lot more harm then it will cause good. It's overly reliant on the market, just creating those jobs naturally or organically as soon as support is taken away. And I think, you know, it may well make sense on a spreadsheet for the Treasury, but it will cause real pain in people's lives for the people that will lose support almost overnight uh, at the end of October. Yeah. Okay, on to the youth programme. Sorry, I just had to ask that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that there were lots of packages which spoke to support for young people. I think overall, there was probably a lot less that was impressive in the detail and the substance than there was in the rhetoric, but it was still good to see something. I mean, I'm sure Nikki has got lots of thoughts on this as well, but for me, there were two particularly eye-catching proposals. So one was what they're calling this kickstart scheme, where young people under 25 who are on universal credit, which is our unemployment benefit, if they're at risk of becoming long-term unemployed, then there's a commitment from government to find work for them, six-month work placement. They'll be paid at least minimum wage for 25 hours a week. Now, that's a positive thing. It's good to have it. It's new. It didn't exist before. But it's also, again, unfortunately, nowhere near enough because a big problem that we had coming out of the last crisis was the quality of work, not just the amount of jobs being created. And 25 hours a week on minimum wage, which is only guaranteed for six months, is not going to go that far and will not address what might be a far deeper, far longer term shock. The other problem with that scheme, the kickstart scheme, is it's not yet clear, or at least I've not seen yet, how government will specify what they mean by long-term unemployed or at risk of being a long-term unemployed. Because that makes a big, big difference because it's a bit of a myth that people tend to spend a lot of time unemployed. Many people become unemployed for a bit and then find temporary low quality work again for a bit then move back into unemployment it's a cycling of low pay and poverty so if they set the threshold for this definition of long-term unemployed too high actually most people in the unemployment count will miss out entirely and we haven't had that detail yet the other um piece i'd highlight from my kind of look at the proposals is a bonus for employers to take on apprentices permanently as workers so the stand to receive i think is about two thousand pounds per apprenticeship that they convert into work if the person's under 25. And again, that's welcome. But it's also, unfortunately, to put a down on things, it's not clear to what extent the money going into this is new money or it's been taken away from other elements of apprenticeship support. And it's not clear either the extent to which employers will really take on this bonus and it'll actually make that difference in, in creating that work or, again, what quality work it will be coming out the other side. Mm, so more uncertainty there. Nikki, what do you reckon about the job creation scheme? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, to echo Alfie's 
points, it's welcome and it's a good start, but it doesn't go anywhere near as far enough as it needs to to tackle this crisis. And also to kind of look at the longer term of, you know, what do we want our labour market to look like? What does a green recovery look like? It hasn't got that detail to it. And just to kind of highlight the focus on young people is great. And again, it is welcome because they are more likely to work in some of the sectors that are the most high risk, that have had shutdowns, had the highest failure rates. So, you know, under 25s are three times more likely to work in food and accommodation and the arts and entertainment. And they're two sectors that have really struggled. And it's unclear how long that is going to go on for. So it is really important to focus on young people, but there does need to be a jobs guarantee in general for people who lose their jobs, need the option of retraining and reskilling and finding decent work. And I think we need to see it as a real investment in recovering from this crisis and dealing with the current situation, but also longer term. You know, what is our vision of what we want the economy to look like in three, five 10 years and I think it feels like there's a bit of a disconnect there as well in that kind of long-term thinking as well as dealing with the current crisis you know and we do know that these things can work the future jobs fund which was the program for young people after the last financial crisis which is obviously different circumstances and how it pans out may well be very different but it did see um, an increase in the chances of young people who took part getting a longer term job so I think building on good lessons learned from that and then actually looking at, you know, what didn't work and what are the new demands now, what is different about the world we live in now. I think we need that leadership from government and I think we need them to be looking at sectoral packages and training that's good quality and that will lead to career progression. And, you know, how are we going to get to a high skill, high pay economy if we create a situation where actually people could take advantage of the scheme I mean again that kind of fire and rehire thing is a risk could employers potentially target younger people fire them and then bring them back on this scheme sort of advertising it as oh well you know you're going to get all this training and stuff and actually you're on potentially worse terms and conditions so I think you know there needs to be real clarity around the detail of this and what the benchmarks are and what the obligations on employers will be and I think there needs to be an ask on employers to top wages up to the real living wage as Alfie said minimum wage on uh, not what would be considered a full-time contract is not going to help a lot of people and it's still going to leave people in really precarious situations who may have found themselves getting into even more financial difficulty over the last few months and we need to make sure that equality is built in from the start in a lot of the sectors that are the low pay insecure sectors sectors that have faced tighter lockdown restrictions and had higher levels of furlough we know that a lot of women work in these sectors there's a high proportion of BME workers we also need to make sure that this scheme is enabling workers with disabilities to have access I feel like the announcements there was some all right headlines and there were some top level numbers but I think as Alfie said once you start to look into the detail there's a lot of questions still to be answered. Yeah and as you say I mean a long way to go on some of those longer term pieces as well just picking up that piece that Nikki mentioned there Alfie about the kind of green recovery element another big budget announcement was Sunak proposing a green jobs package centred around upgrading UK homes could you tell us Alfie a little bit about what that means and whether it's enough is it a good thing? Yeah, I mean, on the on the face of it, direct intervention from government to actually create jobs, not just bonuses or cash handouts to uh, employers to do that for them, is a positive thing. And, and the reason it's positive is because it gives government the opportunity to say, it's not enough just to go back to the world we had before, to go back to the precarious labour market of six months ago, 
before COVID, but actually to take this opportunity to say, no, we need to have higher quality work and it needs to be crucially in the industries that are going to be vital for the future. So, you know, insulating homes, renewable energy, the sectors that will be vital for redistributing jobs across the country to areas where they've had high unemployment for a very long time. And COVID, unfortunately, has only added to that. But again, and this is the big but, while in, in principle it's really spot on, what we've actually seen from government is far, far weaker than what we saw in other areas. So we had, you know, £5 billion invoking the language of a new deal, which um, comes from Roosevelt, the American president after the Great Depression in the 1930s. But of course, it's not comparable at all to the American New Deal. The New Deal in the 1930s invested about 40% of the entire US economy over a period of a number of years in creating new jobs. What we got a couple of weeks ago was £5 billion, and that's about 0.2% of GDP. And worse than that, None of that money was even new. It was all money that was going to be spent anyway over the next three, four, five years, but they brought a bit of it forward. It's really disappointing because it means there will be no extra investment actually over the next three, four years. We'll just spend a bit more of it in the next year and a half and a bit less later on. And that's a huge, huge missed opportunity. We did work at the New Economics Foundation and then others have as well to show just you know how big the opportunity is in what we're calling you know zero carbon infrastructure jobs. We've shown how if you did a really kind of detailed look at all the different projects that are viable over the next 12, 18 months. So these are projects where you can significantly improve the UK's efforts to get to net zero carbon emissions, but in ways that are all compatible with creating jobs in the right places, creating high densities of jobs, but also jobs that can you know be resilient to social distancing increasing again. And we showed that an investment of about £28 billion, so that's you know five, six times more than what governments announced, even if their money was all new money, an investment of £28 billion is possible over the next 18 months and would create about 400,000 additional jobs. So these are you know really big opportunities to shift the dial and change the direction of the economy, which unfortunately was completely missed. Mm. And are there other areas that you think we should be creating jobs in other than the kind of green jobs that you mentioned? That's right. Absolutely, there are. So, I mean, the first point to make is that just going back to the beginning of the conversation and just how dire some of the forecasts are for unemployment. So, you know, we're looking at unemployment being perhaps up to 2 million worse than it was last year. So 400,000 jobs created in green infrastructure is brilliant, really, really welcome if it were to happen, but it's certainly not enough. But it's also not enough because the future of our economy can't just be bricks and mortar hard hats around the country. There's also vital infrastructure that needs expanding, which people don't traditionally think of. And that's what we're calling at the moment social infrastructure. And in a pandemic, actually, we've come to realise more than ever just how important this infrastructure is. And it includes things that you might not often think about, but our, our care sector providing crucial infrastructure to all of us at particular points in our lives. Childcare, um, in addition to old age, adult care, also vital, not only for reducing long-term inequalities among children, but also allowing parents, particularly women, to be able to re-enter the labour market in a period such as now where incomes are, are lower and it's harder to afford some of the really high rates of childcare that are charged by the private sector. So we're at the moment doing work, almost a kind of, if you like, analysis to say, you know, how much could we invest feasibly creating jobs in key social infrastructure sectors, care work, childcare, um, education as well, and how many jobs would that create and how many training opportunities would it create right now to get people off unemployment as well? Mm, Okay, so lots of potential. Nikki, while the government has obviously been working up 
the proposals, some of which we've talked about. Unions have been working away in the background. I know you've been doing that work as well. So could you tell us a little bit about what unions have been doing to defend their members during the pandemic? Yeah, sure. I mean, so we've discussed the job retention scheme. That was obviously a big policy area that we contributed to. And we have been talking about a jobs guarantee and we've published a few reports on that. I think the cost of not protecting jobs far outweighs any action that the government could take now. And that is something that we see as central to the policy. And it's something that we've been continuing to report on and lobby on. And there's a lot of that work going on behind the scenes. We also worked really hard at the start of the crisis and continue to lobby on it around sick pay and social security. We managed to get day one rights to statutory sick pay, which wasn't in place before. So that's been really important. But obviously, as I'm sure uh, many of your listeners know, like the level of statutory sick pay is far too low. And that is going to increasingly need to be addressed when we're potentially asking people to isolate for two weeks once the test track and trace system is fully up and running and that's going to be something that again we just don't know how long those measures are going to need to be in place and you know it's a real income loss for people and a lot of people cannot afford to isolate for two weeks and not going to work if they're not getting some sort of compensation from work or if statutory sick pay doesn't improve so we're continuing to advocate for better statutory sick pay. And again, you know, universal credit, the average payment is about £94 a week. It's not going to cover people's basic living costs. And again, we don't know how long people are going to be relying on that. There's also, you know, things like the two-child limit. We had a joint letter in um, the Times calling for an end to some of those really punitive benefit caps. So we're sort of campaigning on those policy issues. If we can get some movement on those now, you know, they're going to make a real difference to people's lives in the next few months and going forward. You know, there's a bigger conversation about what does a reformed social security system look like? What is a fair social security system? What is a social security system that doesn't exacerbate people's problems and income inequality? I mean, the other big campaign that we've been leading on is health and safety at work and the need for risk assessments, the need for them to be published and the need for them to be enforced. Again, back to Alfie's point at the start, there is no long-term recovery from this if we don't get on top of the health and safety aspects. We obviously get a lot of intel from our affiliates and through the reps that come to like our training webinars and things like that. And, you know, like people have had to work in some really not great conditions and have had to put themselves at risk and we had a report out today about the risks that particularly black and minority ethnic workers have been taking and one in six feel that they've actually been put in a position where they're doing jobs that their white counterparts aren't asked to do so that health and safety aspect is a real key priority for us. Our unions have also been doing a lot of work in terms of negotiating for pay top-ups to the furlough scheme so that people aren't losing any income. We know the real living wage is around about £9.30 to £10 an hour, depending on where in the country you live. And, you know, the minimum wage isn't that. And 80% of the minimum wage definitely isn't that. So, and then again, trying to get employers to use furlough instead of redundancies. That was more at the start of the um, crisis. There was a period where we were waiting for some sort of announcement. And so we've had to sort of be in negotiations with employers to make sure that they're not laying people off. And once furlough was announced, sort of advising them on how best they can use that. And then other unions have been doing stuff to financially support their members. So the musicians' union is a really good example. Um, they've set up a hardship fund because about a third of their members have received no support whatsoever other than potentially universal credit. So they weren't eligible for the job retention scheme and they also weren't eligible for the 
self-employed income support schemes. Interestingly, just to mention, one of the things that our reps have been feeding back to us is that mental health has become a real priority issue for them. And, you know, obviously it's something that we've always campaigned on and campaigned for better mental health policies in the workplace, but there's been a noticeable increase in the amount of mental health related support that trade union reps are giving and the advice that they're giving out we have obviously had to adapt our ways of working because we can't organize in the usual ways and you know we can't have the meetings in the usual ways but we have provided a lot of online support our tu education department's been doing webinars going through after the government's made an announcement like what does this mean for trade union reps like what does that mean in your workplace so you know i think we've done a lot of work to try and provide information and guidance as well and I think there's a real appetite for that and I think that's something that we're going to need to continue with because there's still a lot of questions to be answered. Yeah I mean sounds like there's lots to do but lots of amazing work being done as well. We're almost almost at the end but I just wanted to throw one final question over to you Alfie just picking up some of the things that we've discussed about what else the government should be doing to protect people from unemployment. I'm sure that's a huge question but if there's kind of a couple of key things that you could highlight that we could be organizing or pressuring for or you know at least hopeful about have you got any ideas? Yeah, I mean, I think one of them actually is repeating what Nikki said, but it's so important it needs repeating, which is focusing on Social Security, on our benefit system, because about one and a half million people fell through the cracks over the last few months. So despite, you know, the self-employed income protection scheme, despite the job retention scheme, one and a half million people just fell right through and landed on universal credit, which, again, as Nikki said, is one of the weakest Social Security systems, you know, among advanced economies far, far weaker than most European economies. In fact, I think it's the third worst among 34 OECD countries. And going into this crisis, it was also the worst system in the UK's own history. Government put in about £7 billion to try and improve it a little bit. But stepping back, that £7 billion reversed just one-fifth of the cuts that have happened since 2010. So it's still a far, far weaker system than 2010. So all the things Nikki was saying are really important. I mean, the Economics Foundation have been doing a lot of work in this space, looking at what we're calling a minimum income guarantee. We set out proposals for how you could actually set up a whole scheme relatively quickly and easily that was evolution on current universal credit systems. So you don't have to replace the systems, you can do it very quickly. But it would sit alongside the job retention system and provide a backstop. So that if you're not eligible for job retention, you get the payment from government, which is far higher than universal credit and keeps you in your home, keeps your children fed, keeps families going until much further into the year. But then more than that, more importantly, we're also looking at how you could make a much more sensible, much stronger, properly poverty reducing social security system permanent as well, and how you could go far beyond the job retention system in in terms of strengthening universal credit. And that I think is going to be a really key campaign, a really key area policy for development over the coming months and years, because it's going to be a big, big fight. And it's, it's also not just about reducing poverty. It's actually also vital to all the things we've been talking about in this podcast around job creation. And that's because if you give the unemployed power, if you allow them to choose to re-enter the labour market on their own terms, so they don't have to pick the first lousy job that comes their way, but they actually know, well, actually, if I sit back and wait and I get the right job for me and my family, and they can do that because they've got enough payments coming in to keep things ticking over, then actually what you'll see is you'll see the quality of work going up as well. You'll see better matches, people doing jobs they're actually happy in, they'll progress, and they won't come back to unemployment six months later. And employers will be forced to offer better jobs as well. They'll be forced to by that you know, increased empowerment for people out of work. The only other thing I'd say very quickly is um, I think we've seen a fair bit of innovation 
from government, social security notwithstanding, where they've been very poor, but, you know, things like the job retention system. And that's been good. But I think there are probably two areas which they might want to think about a bit more. And both of them, in fact, build out of where I think government has basically committed to an experiment that is actually ill-advised, which is this job retention bonus we talked about earlier, £9 billion, which will be handed over to employers that retain people in work after the furlough scheme has ended. The problem being that actually it's not enough money to really incentivize employers to do anything different. So it will just be extra money for those who would have had employers anyway. And for those that can't afford to keep their workers on, it won't make the difference. But that nine billion could go into some much more interesting, much more innovative schemes. So, for example, you could actually see the UK government, if they wanted to, create new bank holidays at the end of this year or perhaps after Christmas. And they could use that nine billion to help employers pay for more statutory leave so people can have bank holidays whilst also receiving their pay. And that would be really good, not just because it would help with burnout and help people have more leisure time, time away from work. But also, when people have bank holidays, what we know is they tend to spend their money in domestic sectors like hospitality, like retail, like domestic tourism. And those are precisely the sectors that are really struggling at the moment. So it'd be a boost to workers and a boost to the sectors that badly need it. Similarly, you could use that nine billion to increase minimum wage permanently, but use the nine billion to just pay a little bit of it, at least, of that increase for employers for three, six months to a cushion employers into it. Again, boosting that low pay, increasing spending in the economy, especially in sectors that most need it, but using that nine billion pounds to absorb some of the, the hit to employers. So unfortunately, that nine billion hasn't been well spent at the moment, but I think those are things that we could actively campaign or actively push government to do because it's committed to the money anyway, and there are better ways of spending it. Mm, I mean, I'm convinced either of those sound brilliant. I'm in favour of the bank holiday option. But, you know, anything that you've laid out there, I'm on board with. Lovely listener, that is all we've got time for this week. But if you're itching for more discussion on how unions are organising for the end of furlough, we'll be hosting a Zoom briefing on that very topic on the 23rd of July. That's this Thursday. And the sign up link for that will be in the podcast notes. Alfie Sterling, thanks so much for joining me. If people want to find out more about your work and hear more from you, where can they go? What should they read? Twitter. Um, on Alfie Sterling and um, at New Economics Foundation website where we've got loads of great work mainly just from much more impressive colleagues than myself Fab, thanks Alfie too modest as always and Nikki Pound thanks to you too so much if people want to find out more from you um, where can they go how can they do that? Definitely visit the Trade Union Congress website on there we have loads of blogs that myself and other colleagues in other departments write on a wide range of issues we also have a lot of research reports on that and again if anyone who's listening also is a trade union rep or thinking of organizing in their workplace we also have a lot of resources in terms of employment rights advice and guidance for reps and then also we have lots of twitter accounts we've got the trade union congress general twitter i will put a particular plugin if you follow tuc economics that is the uh, social policy and economics team and we like to have followers and we do lots of great charts and witty commentary wonderful thank you both so much for being with us today i've learned a lot and i'm sure the listeners have too that's it for today's weekly economics podcast if you've enjoyed this episode please tell someone about it as always you can drop us a line with your comments and questions we're at neff on twitter the weekly economics podcast is brought to you by the new economics foundation i'm aisha thomas smith stay safe 